So, Bob, I had all this stuff prepared, and then I looked in the news on Google News and typed in psychology, and there were a bunch of things that I thought, man, I want to talk with Bob about that. So I threw away all my notes, and we're looking at the news. What do you say, Bob? Okay, let's listen to – watch the – yes. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkonda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and someone who occasionally looks at Google News. Who are you, Bob? I occasionally listen to you looking at Google News. I am your old friend from graduate school. We've been friends for 24 years. I said 22 last time, but it's 24 years. <laughs> um, uh, and I am a therapist in practice here in Seattle as well. Yeah. And do you have any openings in your practice? Yeah, I do. So if you want to hire Bob as your therapist, you can email me at contact at com, and I can hook you up with him. So hey, it's for... Go Before ahead. we get into the news, I wanted to say, you know, we got a lot of response from the the last the, the last episode we did together was on uh, Sense of Self. It was mm-hmm. going to be MSC, the mental status exam, but it was on Sense of Self. Mm-hmm. And, and it was for patrons only. Yeah, and, and a lot of folks wrote in, and I just wanted to say thank you for all the encouraging and supportive emails, and I really, boy, it just made my week. Really? Yeah. So this, you know, you're 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 sort of new to the podcast game. Uh, you're particularly new, maybe, to uh, feedback from listeners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, occasionally I'll send you things that people have said. Right. But this episode really resonated. Again, it's called "Lack of Self" and the MSE, and it's for patrons only. And yeah, we got a lot of responses to it. A lot of people could relate. A lot of people felt connected to Bob during that conversation. A lot of people um, really were affected by it. And yeah. so uh, what was it like to read all those? Because every time I got something, I would forward it to you. And Yeah, you did. What, what was it like for you? Well, um, it felt very warm. I felt very honored. Um, I was glad that um, my transparency was having an impact. I, I value transparency, and I value transparency in, among therapists. And we got a email from a therapist uh, in another city who um, said she has similar kind of struggles. I, I think, yeah, so she said she has similar kind of struggles. And, you know, like, I feel like, you know, we had a real conversation, you know, you and me, friends for a long time, and we had a real conversation and had this impact. And, It was delightful to get all this feedback. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, now that we're talking about this... Oh, well, yeah. Let's not talk about the news. Let's let's answer one of our patrons' questions that has to do with this while we're on the topic. All right, while we're on it. This is from patron Christy. Christy is a colleague of mine, actually, and she asks, if there... Is there a right or best way to know or engage with your with our concept of self? Is there a right or best way to know or engage with our concept of self? And what are the indicators of good knowledge of self? Bob, what do you think? I'd say one of the things to think about in terms of indicators is how much compassion do I have for myself? How's it going with the self-judgment? And how am I doing with knowing what I want, expressing it when I need to, and seeking it? How do you get there, though, exactly? Because, you know, it's it's easier said than done, right? Oh, it's a hell of a lot easier said than done. I, I've been in therapy for almost 30 years. Has, has that been a big component? Yeah, and actually, the, the, the therapist I see now, uh, particularly a big component, um, I've been seeing him for two years, and 
our focus is often on in the moment, in session, right now, how do you feel and what do you want? Awesome. And it's so fucking provocative. Like, uh, What do you mean? Like, it freaks me out. I don't like it when he um, prompts me to focus that way. I, I say to him sometimes, oh, yeah, that's what you make me do. And he just laughs at me and he's like, I'm not making you do anything. You know, you know you're a volunteer here. And I think what I do is I'm shifting responsibility for my own desire, or my own position, my own feelings onto him because it's very uncomfortable for me to own it. But anyways, my, my answer well, to my question is... Why is it uncomfortable? Uh, it makes me anxious. It, it like violates my um, learnings, my programming. Yeah. Yeah. And the learning was... Um, don't pay attention to yourself. Pay attention to the world around you. That's how you survive. And that's basically your function, what you are. Right. And if you focus on the self, you could yeah. either assert yourself, which will get your mm. hand slapped. Oh, man. Or you could not uh, notice other people's states. Yeah. And therefore miss an opportunity to manage yeah. the c- scenario to save yourself. Right. Yeah. That one really bugs me, that second one. Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, if I, miss, if I miss an opportunity, I just fill with shame because oh. it's like, oh, I let you down uh. as opposed to, you know, I'm not captain of the boat. Right. That's interesting. It's not just a hypervigilance, but it's a um, sense that you've been a bad human being yeah, or something. Yeah, that's right. I guess, I guess that would be, you know, another result of consequence, right? That if you didn't pay attention to your abusive caregiver, then you, they would have punished you somehow or shamed you somehow is yeah. the, is the assumption when yeah. you were very young. You're right. And that was your role in the family too. Yeah. 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 In my family. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For the benefit of your siblings, by the way, to some extent. Yeah. Though they each, they each have their, you know, their respective roles. Yeah. I don't envy them. Yeah. Well, you just became a good therapist because, and that's one of the things actually that uh, I don't know if we went into is that um, having self issues and having bolstered our attention on others actually gives us some ability to be a better therapist. Yeah, to really pay attention to other people, to be a, to be very uh, perceptive, right, about other people's states, and to be and to have it be resonant with you, right? That sort of preoccupied. Uh, stance right. of uh, not only am I paying attention, but I feel it in my bones. Right. When someone around me is sad, mm-hmm. I, I can't help but to feel sad. Right. And that can that's a pro and a con. It's a pro and a con. Right. Even therapeutically, it's a pro and a con. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I'm in danger of is privileging my client relationships um, and then not being candid and frank as I could be in the service of the client, you know? What do you mean? Uh, let's see if I can think of a way to talk about that. Um, um, I can confuse compassion for the other with um, fra- fragilizing. Fragilizing them? Fragilizing them and, and our relationship. Yeah, so not assert my, my own needs. So let's say somebody, um, um, like this happened recently, somebody underpaid me for a session. And what I struggle with is bringing it up and saying something about it um, uh, because I don't want to hurt their feelings, but it's not a real way to be with anybody. It's not genuine. Right. So stuff like that. And, and you know, varying degrees. Like I'd say that this particular situation is a rather minor one. It's still valuable and important. But what I, but the thing that I'm doing is actually, it, ha- it can be a disservice to a client. 
Interesting, yeah. So sometimes it might make it so that you pay almost like too much attention to them and not enough attention to your own therapeutic right. awareness or something. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Out of balance. So uh, in preparation for this question from patron Christy, I thought of off the top of my head, because I've never really thought about it before in terms of formalizing mm-hmm. my approach to helping clients with uh, bolstering their sense of self. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you think about this, Bob. Okay. So the other thing that I thought of, I thought, you know, I have all these books on my shelves that you can sort of see, and I thought, well, somewhere in these books has to be some guidance around it, but I couldn't really think of any source that really helped with it. I'm sure there are some psychoanalytic, psychodynamic sources, Mm -hmm. interpersonal sources, I'm guessing, but nothing with concrete steps or something. Mm -mm. It's one of those amorphous personality, psychoanalytic, talk things that there's not a lot of formalization of yeah. what what are we talking about here and i think that um the concept is a little amorphous too so it doesn't really lend itself to mm-hmm. steps but anyway so number one thing that i thought of was awareness of awareness of self right um now all of these steps are in relation to someone else you can't really do this on your own yeah um in the same way that you, as a two-year-old child can't develop a sense of self on their own. Yeah. It's totally a relational process with someone else. So all these steps, and some of them are more related to other people than others, but I would say all of them are. Um, because our notions will run amok in our weighting of different factors, unless someone else looks at us and goes, no, 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 <laughs> like, that's not fair to you, yeah. or... Um, I don't, that's not what's going on in my head, right. you know, yeah. like there's no way to, cause all these things are rational thoughts, you know, it's rational to say to, to, to yourself, um, at least without taking into account weights, right. I should think about other people's feelings, right? Like that's normal. Yeah. Nothing. That's like good, right? Yeah. It's useful. But to someone who wasn't raised well, uh, and meaning that they were mistreated, uh, they might have developed a, an overweight to that factor when right. they are thinking about things and uh, trying to weigh the balances of um, moral actions right. and what is right in life and what's fair. Yeah. And they will say, you know, well, I should think about other people's feelings 99% of the time uh, at the sacrifice of my own feelings. Because, yeah, that feels right to me. You know, you you think about your feelings, you think about other people's feelings. Left to their own devices, it's 99 to 1. Whereas when someone else is in relation to the individual trying to develop a self, they'll be like, from the way you're talking about it, it seems like you're way overbalanced right. on other people's feelings and not enough on you. Right. You know, and the person will be like, well, I don't know. It's Like, I, I've had conversations with people about this for years in therapy, and one of the things that I hear from them a lot of times is in relation to, I guess, this topic that, that I'm giving as, as an example, is they will say something along the lines of, well, isn't that being mean to other people? They, they'll say something like that. They'll be like, so if I'm asserting myself, if I'm thinking of my own needs, it, it, especially where, when they're in contrast to what other people want, isn't that being mean? Yeah. Isn't that being unfair? Right. And they're convinced of that because that's how it feels. Sure. 
And I'm over here, and one of the phrases that I found myself saying a lot to people in, in this state is I will say, we could spend a thousand years of, in therapy and on this issue, and you will never get to a place where you are actually being mean. As we develop your assertiveness and your own self, you will only approach balance, but probably never get there. You will never cross that threshold into you being selfish and mean, because I I just would say that like I guarantee you. Yeah. Um. So when we get there, I will tell you if we've crossed the threshold from asserting what you deserve to have sure. versus tipping the scales, and now you're taking too much from the world. I'll tell you when we're getting close. We are nowhere near that point yet. You are in the very beginnings of asserting what is yours to have and what you deserve. Uh, so let's just put that aside. And without me as a uh, outside person who's paying attention, they would walk away completely concluding that uh, a tiny little bit of assertiveness is essentially being selfish and imposing and aggressive and right. mean to other people and right. unfair. Uh, so it all has to do with relation to other people. Um, so the number, first thing is being awareness of the self, um, you know, to slowly realize that they, that they don't actually know who they are or what they want. So this is sort of the first step. It's mm-hmm. like just awareness of the concept of self. That, you know, like, do you remember when you had that first awareness? Like, oh, I, you know, there's this, con- there's this concept of self. Yeah. And here is here is where I am in in that process. Do you remember when you realized that? No, I don't remember. Uh, though I've had these moments, and I can't tell you a specific one where I actually recognize, oh, I exist. Like I exist in my marriage, right? I'm not just um, a breadwinner or a dish ma- a dishwasher or whatever it is that you know people do. Well, an emotional pleaser would yeah. be the more specific. Right to be more specific, I'm not just that thing that I actually exist and. Um, uh, uh, there's times when that feels good and there's times when that feels threatening to realize self. Yeah. Threatening because, because, uh, the questions that go off in my head are, what if I can't sustain the energy I need in order to kind of maintain a position? Cause it, it does take effort and energy. And the other is, uh, meaning see. what, what if I can't sustain the energy and I let myself down? Yeah. Or, or, and I'm in, also inconsistent. Like today I can say, oh, you know what I want? I want to make love with you today. And tomorrow, what if I'd like, I just can't somehow. I just can't. Oh, interesting. So yeah. there's this worry that if you uh, bother other people with yourself, right. that they're going to be like the next day, like, what happened to that thing or yeah. something? And then you'll, yeah. you'll disappoint yet again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, so you don't remember like a point, no. like you're 25 and you're no. like, oh, wow, well, okay. You, no. But it must have happened at some point, right? A dawning, yeah, I guess more a dawning than a, um, a moment. Okay. Yeah. Um, number two is I deserve to know who I am and what I want. So yeah. this is a, a notion, so awareness of self, like where am I on the scale sort of thing, you know, am I a 5% sense of self person or where am I? And then... I deserve, if I'm under the threshold of fairness uh, and health, um, I deserve to actually have a sense of self is, is an important element. Because just knowing 
oh, yeah. I don't have a self, or right. I don't have... And to be clear, everyone has a self. They, they're just not aware of yeah. it is, is the key. Um, some, you know, I might use language like uh, developing a self or something, but really, it's, particularly for adults, it's a matter of just finding yourself. Yeah. Um, and the, I guess you could argue that's the same for the kids. But anyway, uh, and so you have to, so I, I'm aware of this. And then some people are like, well, I'm not really at the point where I feel like I deserve right. to be better. Yeah. And so that's an important thing. And that has to do with a sense of self on some level. Absolutely. Because you have to feel like you deserve to be in the world. Right. And aware of how a lack of sense of self actually impacts you negatively. Right. So, um, so that's an important step again with a therapist. I find that anger helps because oh yeah, it's a motivating emotion. Absolutely, yeah, and it's quite enraging. I think to um, feel the reality of so many years without being connected to who you are and why you're here. You know, you're not just a a you know, a seaweed that's, flo- you know, being pushed around by the waves, you right. know, you, you're an agent in the world who has power and, and no one else is looking out for that, really. Nobody is? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number three is uh, to become aware of what anxieties are getting in the way. Uh, we've already actually demonstrated that a little bit. You've talked about a number of your anxieties. Yeah. You've become aware of those over the years through oh, yeah. therapy and your own work. Yeah, right. And so you, you phrased it as such. You didn't phrase it as, um, you know, foregone conclusions that things that should be avoided. You're like, well, this is what I end up worrying about. Right. By implication, you're saying it's not a rational worry. Right. It's 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 some it's an anxiety that creeps in. Right. Again, with help with other people, uh, yeah. you're you're trying to um, work on those um, barriers, trying to figure out what's getting in the way of of me. Because I find that it's a f- fine and dandy thing to say, "Oh, I I know my sense of self right. is low. I deserve to be better. I deserve to have a you know greater sense of who I am and what I deserve in the world and my you know sense of purpose and." Uh, and but if you're completely aware of all the things that are are in the way, you'll just never get to the next level, you know. Right. Um, the fourth thing is family of origin factors. We've talked briefly sure. about this, and we talked about it a lot in the other episode. Right. Um, again, with a therapist or with someone else, you explore the underpinnings of uh, why you didn't des- uh, develop a sense of self. Uh, due to some sort of mistreatment, and also the particular flavor of the anxieties, which we've gone into a little bit with you, is like um, as you were asserting yourself uh, at times when you were young, uh, not only would it not be regarded or cared about, but it was somehow punished Punished. as um, how dare you not pay attention to me, Mm. uh, and or even potentially how dare you be inconsistent with your approach to me, I need you to be consistent, which mm. is by default a otherizing or other focused uh, approach to, to, to your parents. Right. And so to explore that really helps because when I'm working with clients and we identify those connections, it's much easier to quickly conceptualize them. They will, you know, they'll come in and they'll be like, yeah, you know, so I was talking with my wife and 
oh, you know, I, I just, I, I find that, um, she's just upset all the time. She's really mad at me. I, I, you know, I, and I did this and I did that and I probably should have done that. And then, you know, we'll, we'll start exploring it and maybe he'll say something like, well, I don't know. I just came home from work and I, all I was trying to do was, uh, just trying to make her happy. And, you know, she wasn't really talkative. And so I got angry. And so I did this and that. And then, you know, we would somehow, because of our history in therapy would say, so this is when your wife was, what did you see? Well, I saw her sitting on the couch texting while watching TV and, and she, she didn't really acknowledge me when I walked in the door. Um, very similar to your alcoholic mother, right? You know, that, that's, that's what she did right. in, in, in symbol or in actuality. Right. And that triggered for you, uh, anxiety and an abandonment feeling, which t- totally makes sense, which made you, which threw you back into a, gr- a regressive state of, when you needed to actually really hyper focus on other people and fix their problems instead of thinking about what you wanted in the moment. So if we could just sort of go back in time, you know, all that stuff, what would you want in the moment? Well, I don't know. Um, I guess if she just wants to sit on the couch and text people, I guess I don't really care. Is that what I'm supposed to be saying? I don't know. What do you think? You know, like, it's like instead of being railroaded into I need to solve her emotional state or right. and even misinterpreting her emotional state right. is a um is a lack of self like you know if the self I want to chill playing a video game right and I don't know what's going on with her but I assume if she wants something she'll come to me and if she doesn't and she's upset at right. me I'm okay cuz I know I haven't done anything fucking wrong right I just went to work and I came home and she seems a little pissy I yeah. don't know I even reached out to her and said, yeah. hey, anything wrong? And she said, no. Yeah. So, you know, I'm cool and I'm okay. Yeah. The world is not going to end and I'm solid. And right. even if she leaves me, which is not likely, sure. but in the very strange universe where this is the first step to divorce, um, I'll still be I'll okay. I'll still be okay, yeah. It's, you know, people, It's it'll be sad. Right. <laughs> it'll be horrible. Yeah. But I have a self. I don't need these other people to, to define me. Now I'm saying this this last scenario, yeah, as if it's some easy thing to oh, achieve. Right. It's yeah. not. As you know, thirty years of therapy later, you're right. you know forty percent down the road or something, you know, and so it it takes a long time sure. to to really. And the way that we get there is through self reflection, through this process, but also relationally and having someone validate us oh, and say like, yeah, you're you're doing good. Like that was good, and then you you get that sort of a wash in oxytocin with your therapist of, oh, okay, my therapist approves of me asserting myself. How weird is that? Yeah. Like, that's opposite. That's a corrective experience, you know what I mean? Right. And then the fifth uh, step is habitual shift in focus that I could think of. It's like not only just doing those things, but making it habit. Yeah. So Because it has to become something that's automatic. You can't really, like what you were saying earlier, it requires a lot of work in yeah. your brain to be quote unquote consistent with your assertion of self, whereas uh, over time, if you just keep doing it, it event you eventually want to get to a place where it's habit. You don't really have to work that hard at it, right? Which again, you know, might be after death or something. <laughs> Who knows how long <laughs> how long that'll take? But um, so the key is 
is what you were saying that I, I in terms of practicality with 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 therapy is oh, right. in the moment, or and I guess outside of therapy, because sometimes people ask me for homework about this, and this is what I tell them to do, is you, uh, whenever you can, and this is the habit, you ask yourself, what do I feel right now? What do I want right now? Mm-hmm. What do I feel? What emotions am I feeling right now? Or what sensations am I feeling? It could just go even global, just like what, yeah. what temperature is am I feeling on my skin? Um, and then... Two, what do I want? Right. Now, at the beginning of the journey, no one has answers to this question yeah. that I've worked with. They'll be like, uh, I don't know. They might even, as you say, be anxious about even posing the questions right. to themselves. It's like, well, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that will mean I can't focus on you, therapist, and your state. You know right. what I mean? If I'm focusing on me, I can't focus on you. Um, so there's a lot of steps to it, but I, I find that that repetitive question from therapist and internally from client that over a long period of time, eventually you get there. Yeah. Uh, and there's little micro moments of awareness or skills, so to speak, that you right. develop like um, by year five, when you ask yourself, what do I want? Um, it, you know, a certain want starts to emerge like, huh, you know, I think what I want is to go for a hike and or go for a walk in the wilderness. I, I feel like that's what I want right now. And then whenever that person asks themselves what they want, that that desire pops up because mm-hmm. they've always had it in them that they like nature and that they like taking walks. And and you know what? I'd like my spouse to come with me, but I don't have them to I don't have you know they don't have to come with, with yeah. me for me to do this. I'm gonna do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Um not to, to spite them, but no. just like they can come or they can camp. But I really, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. It's not about anyone else. I'm pretty sure this want is purely emanating from my soul <laughs> and from nowhere else. And I've, I've, I've turned on the lights just enough in my bedroom of self to see that yeah. consistently. Um, what do you think about everything I'm saying, Bob? I agree with everything you're saying. The, I, I've asked people to do the same exercise, exercise, how do I feel and what do I want? And the things that I add are, if it's something that pertain, I got to ask for, did I ask? Right? Because it's good feedback to know that I want it. It's also good feedback to recognize, did I actually ask for it? And then did I get it? Because I can want something and not ask. I can want something and ask and not get. And not getting isn't necessarily the end-all, be-all. I think recognizing that I want and taking a step because nobody gets what they want all the time, right? That's the Rolling Stones, right? Yeah. But um, if I learn how to pay attention to what I want and learn how to ask for it, the chances of me getting what I want actually increase vastly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And the last sort of nuance to this habitual shift in focus, which I'm realizing maybe deserves its own step, is fi- is figuring out who is getting in your way and in what way they're getting in your way in terms of your development of self or assertion of self. Right. A lot of times, by the time people come to therapy with us, they have lived a long life of not paying attention to themselves for reasons of mistreatment early in life and have uh, needed attachments, and they happen to fit really well with dominant people mm-hmm. or or other people who have trouble with the self. Yeah. And... 
they can sometimes be in relationships with people who actually are very much threatened by your client's development of self or assertion of what they want. Right. It's, it's very scary. It's not like people don't dominate typically because for shits and giggles, they do it because of attachment worries. The idea to the other person is like, well, if, if my spouse asserts what they want, they might want not me and they might want uh, things that I can't provide. Right. And that scares me. And scary. so I need to dominate that person so that they have, they don't have any wants or, or they have my wants. Right. And uh, so uh, sometimes in therapy, spouses will react negatively to your client's development of self and, right. and, and, and also just trying to figure out like how to navigate that. It doesn't mean you have to leave the person. No. I, it just means it's actually a wonderful crucible for development of self, actually. Yeah, it's, it it's a wonderful like uh, training ground, so to speak, right. of, of like, um, like when Neo starts learning Kung Fu in The yeah. Matrix... Yeah. Um, he doesn't learn it alone. I think I saw The Matrix with you. Yeah. When it came out, yeah. great film. Do you remember the theater we saw it in? Yeah, uh, Neptune, I think. No. No, where did we see it? I think it was Oak Tree. We saw it up at Oak Tree. I think so. Have you been there lately? I have. It's it's my theater, you know? Oh, man. It's deluxe now. It is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You get your own, like, deluxe massive, one. massive chair. Yeah. I feel bad, because remember back... So, just a little side note here. Yeah. There, there's a theater in North Seattle that was built because of the emerging money and sort of subvert. North Seattle used to be kind of run down, yeah, on Aurora and all that area, yeah. But uh, in the '90s, there was there started to get money, and at, le- at least a little bit of money, and uh, that corner ended up being really developed. Yeah, Larry's Market. I love Larry's. Yeah. Larry's Market, so so back in the, all of you who are our age, you know, 40s, 50s, can remember back in the day when grocery stores were real shitholes. Yeah. And, uh, or, you know, real small kind yeah, of things. Yeah, small, run down. Yeah. And then in the 80s, they started getting a little bigger. Yeah. But the 90s is when things really kind of blossomed. This is when you right. had your PCCs. Right. Well, and your, you know, Whole Foods comes in the 2000s. Uh, we had we had Metropolitan Market. Right. but. Thriftway. Yeah, Thriftway, which is ironic because Thriftway is actually a really nice uh, chain in Seattle. It's just in Seattle, I think, right? That's all I know. Central Market and Ballard Market. I love Central Market. Yeah. Um, But there was this huge phenomenon in in Seattle. I think it was just Seattle called Larry's Market. Oh, Larry's. And it was this extravaganza experience. And I think when it opened up, there were lines out, out the door to go right. to a grocery store. Yeah, right. And so they just had their regular groceries, but it was all laid out nice, and they yeah. had, like, everything, and the, the employees were yeah. happy. Yeah. And they had a deli, right. and they had a butcher, and, you know, they the had the... Bakery was bakery. awesome. Yeah. Uh, I think they had, like, pizza and pizza, stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. everything. It was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. And then right next door was this brand new cinema. Right. Oak Tree Oak Cinema. Tree. yeah. And it was potentially, if I remember right, the biggest theater in Seattle at no the time. Kidding, really? With with I think eight screens, maybe six. Yeah. Because at the time there was that theater in Northgate. Northgate that had one screen. One screen, right? There weren't any. Well, there's a UA theater downtown with two screens. Right. That's gone now. The Metro. Remember the Metro down on uh, 45th? Metro. It, uh, on yes, yeah, so that's that's AMC now. Right, that 
might have actually been built around the same time. Same time, yeah. Yeah. That was a landmark theater, though. Yeah, it was. So it was more indie. Indie. Yeah. Arty, art films. Right. So I think I, I, t- it was one of the biggest, let's just put it that way. Amazing. And over the years, it hasn't changed um, much. And so now it's like kind of the, it's gone back to being run down. Yeah. And no one goes there. Right. So they revamped the whole theater with the comfy chairs oh, yeah. that recline yeah. and blah, blah, blah. They'll and bring and, food. And, yet, and reserve seating, and yet yeah. no, one's, no one really goes there. Really? And the Larry's Market is now a Asian market. Yeah. You know, like a, the kind of market I like, but if you're not into it, it is disgusting because <laughs> Asian markets are filled with the most smelly things <laughs> on the planet. Uh you know, there's just a different uh, sense of what sort of fish smell yeah. should be allowed in a market when you're Asian. Oh. When you're Asian, it's just like, yeah, dude, that's just how fish smell. Right. To, to most white Americans, they walk into these places, they're just like, oh, my, oh my God. God. It What's smells rotting? so much like fish, you know, and to Asians, <laughs> they're just like, yeah, dude, like, I want to eat that shit up. <laughs> All right, let's get this back on the rails. Let's take a break, and when we get back, let's talk about something else. What do you say, Bob? Sure. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. When you become a patron on patreon.com, you get access to hundreds of, of our best episodes, arguably, including the one we were referring to called Lack of Self and the MSC, which is a much larger conversation, more, shall we say, self-revealing conversation about a sense of self. Um, also, if you're having trouble with the premium feed, which happens, I would say, 5-10% of the time, email me at contact at com. I would love to help you. Also, buy my book called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. Good book. Thanks. About every month, about two people buy my book, which I appreciate if you're one of those people out there. It's a good book. Uh, you're making me happy with that one. You know, it's one of those things where as you're writing it, you're just thinking like, is anyone going to read this thing? You know, well, is anyone going to care? Yeah. I don't care anymore. I just got to get this thing done. Right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's at, at, now that I think about it, it's kind of nice because it would have, I, in the beginning I was like, not a lot of people are buying the book in the beginning. Yeah. And, but now that I'm looking back, it's almost like a year ish more. Yeah, that's right. Where, people are still buying it. So I guess I would rather have all the sales spread out over time so that five years from now, I'm still reminded that all that work was still worth still it worth it for yeah. at least one or two people. Um, like our Facebook page and play our Tuesday Tougher Bluff game. Also, follow us on Instagram. My wife, Stacy, is doing a lot of the social media stuff, and it's pretty fun. Uh, join our Facebook fan group. I actually don't participate in that because I want people to have a place where they can complain about me. <laughs> uh, tweet Birdo at PsychZeroBirdo and also uh, subscribe to his YouTube channel. He has some weird uh, videos that he's put up. Um, uh, weird is a funny word, but he, uh, he posts a lot. He posts, he's been posting a lot about He-Man lately. And he kind of has a concept. He's almost like the David Lynch of YouTubers as far as I can tell. Um, also, if it, we've had over 850 episodes, and if you're listening on your phone, then 
it's likely you only have access to the last 300 at best. And so if you want to, if you want, and we have a lot of good episodes prior to 300 episodes ago. So if you want the archive, go to our website. It's, I think it's pretty convenient. Um, also, we're shooting for our next Patreon goal. So become a patron. Our last Patreon goal was a scholarship, a $2,000 scholarship to someone who was going to have to quit her doctoral studies if she didn't get a scholarship. Um, you know, she ran into a cap on federal loans. Did you know there's there's a cap? No. So like there's a there's which no one would really know that, right? But like there's a lifetime cap oh. to like the maximum amount of loans you can actually get from the fed, federal government. And I think it's like 250,000. Holy shit. Which sounds like a lot. Well, but if you're getting your uh which she did, if you're getting your a bachelor's and then quickly going into your master's right. and then quick. And then she actually, I think she went back to get her, no, no, she, she did her PhD, which honored her master's. So she hasn't done, she hasn't had any steps backward. You have to get loans to pay for rent and blah, blah, blah right. as well. Often, especially right. if you're not privileged and have a spouse or family that can pay for such things. Yeah. That can easily rack up to $250,000. Oh, man, education's nutty expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, tuition alone for a doctorate, I, for a PhD that honors a master's, I would guess would be 70000 My My PsyD was 140000 but that doesn't honor a master's. So, And then a master's degree is probably 50000 This is just tuition. Yeah. You know? A bachelor's probably... I don't know, 50000 at a state school, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Um, and forget about it if it's at a private, private school. Private school. Oh, yeah. my God. My brother's uh, nep- my, my nephew goes to University of Pennsylvania, private school. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, th- I think like, uh, well, yeah, anyway, it's expensive. Yeah. So, um, so I would argue if you choose correctly, it's worth it. I mean, it, my career has been completely... Yeah based on my degrees, which I find to be quite worth it. But So so she hit the cap and the scholarship kept her in school? Yeah, well, right. So And so she suddenly hits the cap, and then she's like, well, I don't have the money to pay for tuition next semester. Right. What am I, I think I'm going to have to drop out or oh, take a break or something. Yeah. And she's like a couple years from ending the whole thing, you oh, know? Wow. Yeah. Uh, the long journey... And she um, sent out a bunch of feelers for her scholarships, didn't get any except for ours. And $2,000 is, I think, about what her tuition costs. And so she's, she's real happy about that. And she's, Great. she's already done amazing work in the world, and, and she's going to continue to do amazing work. So if we meet our next Patreon goal, we're going to give out a $2,500 scholarship. All right. So, Do we uh, know what, what's the goal? Uh, it's 1,100 patrons, and we're pretty close. Really? Yeah. So uh, hopefully we can get there. Also, if you want to hire me and or Bob as a consultant, you can do so. Uh, if you want to talk about your practice or you want to talk about how to help people with their sense of self, if you want to talk about borderline, if you want to talk about DBT with Bob, you can hire us. People are increasingly taking advantage of that oh. service. Um also, if you want a mug, you become a $20 patron. If you want to become if, – if you want to get a free hour of consultation, there's actually a higher tier on Patreon that you can sign up for, and, and you get one free hour of consultation. I suppose Bob would be a part of that too. Sure, I'll do that. 
Um, and also, if you're an employer and you're, you you want to join ZipRecruiter, use ZipRecruiter.com slash psychology in Seattle. If you, if you sign up through that link, we get a little bit of a kickback. Okay, that is all the boring plugs. Let's stop doing that right now. Um, so let's go into a couple clinical issues, and maybe we'll do another episode where we talk about the news. Okay. So this is an email, or no, actually, so I was on, uh, uh, there's a web, there's a Facebook page for uh, different um, therapists and supervisors, I think, that I, some for some reason, subscribe to. I think it's called like, it might even be for Antioch. Oh. It might be like Antioch grad supervisors or something. Oh, yeah. And people will ask questions and stuff. And so this person asked on that page, is it ethical to refer the daughter of your client to your MFT associate? Um, so MFT associate is an associate license that you get just after graduation. Uh, you didn't have to do this back in the day. No. But, um, uh, I mean, back in the day, you were just a registered counselor until you got your full That's right. certification. That was certification. And right. then later it was like, anyway. So MFT associate is a marriage and family therapy grad who is still required to be supervised post-grad. And then after uh, at least two years, they can become a full licensed person that doesn't need to be supervised. Oh. Um, you didn't know about that? No, I'm I'm just reflecting on the question and understanding, you know, what they're asking. So is it ethical to refer the daughter of your client, so you're a supervisor and a therapist, right? right? The daughter of your client to your MFT associate, which is your supervisee. Of course, nothing about your client would ever be shared in supervision. Thanks in advance. Uh, What do you think, Bob? Well, uh, the first thought that comes to my head is it might be hard to be the therapist that your client needs you to be while at the same time giving advice about for you to your student or your consultee um, about what they're doing in treatment with their kid. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> can you say it again? Cause yeah, I, I, sure. Like um, I could see where there could be a conflict between there's a potential to be a conflict between um, um, your position as your Therap- as a as a therapist and your position as a supervisor to somebody who's linked to your client. Can you think of a scenario where that would be a snag? I mean, I guess I could try to come up with something. I, you know, the first thing that topped in my head is what if there's abuse? Oh, right. Well, good. Perfect. So you are seeing a woman. Yeah. And I guess we don't know if it's a woman or a man client, but let's just say a woman. You're seeing a woman and... Uh, you refer the daughter to your supervisee. Right. Your supervisee learns that the daughter is being physically abused by her mother, your client. Right. And your supervisee... Uh, now, what she says in this the next part of this question is, of course, nothing about your client would ever be shared in supervision. So that's weird because as a supervisor, you have to oversee all of their clients unless they have another supervisor to right. supervise this client, right. which is something that you can do and I've done before. Yeah. Um, so you can't just say like, well, I'm going to refer the daughter of my client to you. Never bring up this client with me. Well, you've basically just said 
you are now operating as if you're not an associate right. licensee. Right. You're now operating as if you're independent. Yeah, you're you you no longer need supervision, which is not the definition of the associate license and right. not the definition of proper supervision. Right. Now, I, they didn't say this, but maybe they were meaning that they would actually consult with with another uh, qualified supervisor. I don't know. Right. It's not un, unheard of. But um so there's that. So so then th- but anyway, the associate person, the supervisee, is like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. I If I go to my supervisor and say, by the way, your client is physically abusing my client, right. will my supervisor be upset at me or be defensive? Well, um, what do I do? Right. So, so now, you, now you do that. Say, say the supervisee does tell the supervisor, I know she told me not to say anything, about this client, but I feel like I have to. Mm-hmm. Supervisor, your client is physically abusing my client. Well, now as a supervisor, you have now learned something about your client that you would never would have known otherwise. Maybe not. Yeah. And now what do you do? Right. You're in an ethical dilemma. You know, you know basically a secret about your client that your client will potentially be sensitive about. Oh, yeah. It's not, it's not incredibly unheard of to have this happen you uh, get an, a release of information to talk with your client's psychiatrist, and your, the psychiatrist says, oh, by the way, she told me that when she was young, she was sexually abused by her dad. I feel like you should probably just know that. Mm. You know, now you know something that your client doesn't know that you know. Right. It's not completely weird, and there's ways to manage that, but it does throw a wrench in things. Yeah. You know, if you accidentally reveal that, and your client's like, I never told you that. How do you know that? Right. The client could feel betrayed. and. It- Impacts talk, your alliance. Yeah, talked about behind their back. Right. It, well, could, yeah. it could really hurt their feelings. And or if you don't tell them, it could create some strain in you about oh. having to hold something back, I yeah. suppose. It's weird. Uh, yeah. Um, now, someone responded right away. Oh, let's hear it. And they said, too close, too many boundary issues. Uh, that was my first hit. Yeah. Um, I, I disagree with that entire uh, supposition. <laughs> I mean, there's... Everything we said so far are definite like things to yeah, consider that would for gum, sure. Yeah, gum it up. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely nothing wrong or um, I don't know uh, untoward <laughs> to uh, consider all those boundary issues and to avoid it. You know, there's a lot of times just uh, better safe than sorry. Yeah. Um, there's you know, there's a lot of. MFTs out there, I, or a lot of therapists out there, I can, refer my, I can refer the daughter of my client to a lot of people. I don't have to give that person to, to my associate. I might be kind of motivated to help my supervisee's practice. And so is that, is that biasing my judgment mm-hmm. in this ethical uh, consider, situation? But to me, and you know, this, is, this comes from a place of having been educated by ethics experts who have written books on ethical sure. considerations um, who tend to be much more lax about ethics than what non-experts are like. That makes sense to me. Um, and also, it's also just something that I have run into a lot as a therapist because sometimes I'm like, you know, my client's like, my daughter, I need to find a therapist and they'll be like, can you know, who do you think would be really good for, for my daughter? I right. need them to be good at this and this and this and this. Sometimes I'm like, my supervisee is the best person for your for your daughter. Right. And I, I suppose I could just give you sort of my second tier uh, recommendations of people that I kind of know. 
but I really know that my supervisee would be a be good, good would be a good match. Um, plus, there's kind of a benefit to this in that you have two colleagues treating two family members. Oh, that now that part of it, I was like, oh no, this could be really good, right? Yeah, because we can, we yeah, we can confer. Yeah, you know, when you go to when you have cancer, for example, right? Heaven forbid, you want your primary doc or your OBGYN and your you know oncologist to be communicating. Absolutely. How great would it be if they if they work in offices right next door to each other? Right. Where you don't have to go across town and hope that they communicate. Like they're working as a team. Right. It's the same in, in therapy. Yes. Uh, if I'm treating the mom and the mom is complaining about the daughter and I go to my colleague and say, this is what the mother is complaining about. And the, the, my colleague is like, well, here's the situation that's happening. Here are the feelings that are happening for the daughter. The daughter's having trouble communicating about those feelings and feels like the mom is being a little dominant sometimes. I go back to the mother and I say, so I talked with the other therapist and you know, it it sounds like your daughter really wants to respond but is afraid of something. I'm not quite sure. You know, is there anything you can do to actually make her feel less afraid? You know, what what can we do here? Um I have done work as a family therapist, we do this kind of stuff all the time. Right. Uh, not only just as one person but also as as a team. It's very common when you're treating a family for yeah. each individual family member to, to also have their own individual therapist. Right. And uh, to work as a team is is so much nicer. And yeah. you really feel – and there's also a, an inspirational aspect to that. Like when I feel like I'm a part of a team treating a family, I'm more motivated. Yeah. I'm more like excited because right. I feel like I have a greater grip on the – wall that I'm trying to climb, you know, right. it's, I'm not just flailing on my own. It's just like, okay, I've got a good handle on the situation because I've, I've heard from my colleagues and I, I kind of know what's happening. And, um, now this of course can get muddy and th- so there's pros and cons, but anyway, it's not considered inherently an ethical violation no. to refer your, uh, the daughter of your client to your supervisee. Seems to me a good practice would be to have all this stuff on the table. Like, oh, yeah, this is a person I supervise, right? And, um, you know, so that everybody knows that they're the, that there's a team here as opposed to two individual counselors who don't talk to each other. Exactly. It's all about informed consent. And right. this is what I always go over with people is, like, as long as you believe your client can make a informed choice that right. is rational and sound, which some clients can't, we just have to acknowledge that but most clients can, then it's up to the client. Yeah. One of our principles is autonomy for the client. Right, right. And informed consent. And so uh, there's pros and cons to this arrangement. And so you work them out, since you're the supervisor, you work them all out, you present them to your... Because so, your client is like, I want to refer my daughter to someone. And you're like, okay, well, I have the perfect person, actually. It's my supervisee. I have other people I could refer your daughter to. Here is the scenario. Right. Um, here are the pros, here are the cons. What do you want to do? And then the daughter, of course, would also have to be informed of that as of well. Once she got connected with your supervisee, right. you would instruct your supervisee to instruct her her client now yeah. about the pros and cons. And then the daughter can decide. And maybe the daughter's like, yeesh, uh, I'm going to be talking some shit about my mom. I don't want my therapist to be... Con- the un- I don't want my therapist to be 
my mom's therapist supervisee. Right. You know, my therapist's boss is aligned with my mom. Right. I, I don't want that shit. It's, yeah. Uh, no, I'd rather work with someone else. Uh, of course, all this would hopefully be worked out before you actually meet in the office. It would be maybe over the phone. Right. This is all totally possible. It's not hard to do. And you, you do all that. You document it. It's a similar thing when people will say it's unethical to work individually with, you know, you're seeing a couple mm-hmm. and one of the people wants to work with you individually. Um, and they'll say it's it's unethical to do that or vice versa, like a individual client says they want to bring their spouse in for couples therapy and they'll be like it's unethical to do that and it's like it can be unethical but as long as you uh, believe that the client can make a sound choice based on the pros and the cons that you give them and you lay them all out to them right and you know for for example on this one say a individual client says they want to bring in their spouse to therapy uh, for like one or two sessions because, you know, you're talking with the, your client. They're just like, man, we're really getting some good work here. But without my husband here, I feel like we can't really affect change in my relationship. Because when I go home, I kind of forget what we're talking. I really Could you sure. help the two of us understand each other's attachment needs in the moment to really – I think we needed a couple of sessions to kind of facilitate that. Well, you say, okay, if, as long as you as a therapist are, feel comfortable with it, which you might not be, and if you're not, then don't. Yeah. But if you are, as I often am, I will say, okay, so here's the pros and the cons. The pro is, is that I know you, and therefore, when you bring in your spouse, you and I don't have to spend a lot of time getting to know each other, and I kind of even know your spouse through your descriptions. And so uh, there's this continuity there that will, that will benefit, as opposed to you just starting with a brand new couples therapist. Right. Um, the other thing is, is when I once I get to know your spouse a little better in person, right. once we switch back to individual therapy, I will be able to retain the personality and reactivity uh, and and sort of self of your spouse, so that I can better advise you on how to approach your spouse because I'll know them better. Um, so those are the pros. The cons are is if your your spouse might feel as though they're ganged up on because. They're the outsider coming right. in the situation. Home so, court advantage. Right. So your spouse might actually uh, benefit better if you actually just start with a brand new therapist. Right. The other con is that say you really like couples therapy and you want to do it all the time. Well, that's not possible with you and me. Um, if you want to retain me as your individual therapist, we can't. We can't do both. Yeah. So, um, so the so a con if if your wife comes in. Then, or your, I don't know what, what sort of gender I was going. Sure, on. Your spouse comes in. Um, is that you uh, won't really? You might. We might get started on something, and then we find out. Oh, actually, if you want to do this ongoing, you really should. And you know that'll be a little disruptive. It's a hiccup. Yeah. There's other pros and cons. You lay it all out, right. and then the and you document all that, and the client can choose. And then once the spouse, if the spouse does come in. You start that whole process over verbally with the spouse. You say, before we get going, just so we understand the landscape here, your uh, spouse has brought you in just for one or two sessions. Um, that's, that's what your spouse, that's what you know, the client wants. You are now actually becoming a client temporarily as well. So you have to sign the disclosure. You have to do all that stuff. Um, is that okay with you? Also, understand that we can't do this uh, ongoing, unless your the the original client decides 
to completely terminate individual therapy. You know, like you, you explain yeah. the whole thing. Oh, yeah. And maybe the spouse is just like, oh, well, I, I was thinking maybe ongoing therapy would, would be good. Okay, then let's just uh, end this right now. <laughs> I'm sorry this happened. Uh, and let's actually uh, – I'll refer you to someone for ongoing couples therapy. Right. It's no big deal. I've done this countless times, and I've never had a problem. Yeah, ever. well, you're clear. If you're clear, people are fine. Yeah. It's when they're surprised. Right. And a lot of people have never been modeled this procedure. Oh, yeah. Because there's this simplistic notion in our industry that anytime there's a slight discomfort that you just like, uh, you know, as this person said on Facebook, too close, too many boundaries, uh, too many boundary issues. It's like, avoid, avoid, avoid. And it's like, okay, if that's how you want to do things, great. But it's not inherently the way that it's supposed to be done, you know? Um, And it really drives me nuts because whenever I'm at trainings or consultations or whatever, like the dominant voice is this person's voice. Oh, is this voice? Yeah, I don't mind that voice. I I feel like, you know, again, if that's how you feel, as long as you're like, well, for me, it's too close and I wouldn't want to do that. As opposed this is the law of the land. Yeah. Yeah. But you talk to an ethics expert who writes books on ethics and how to follow them, they will say, well, it depends. Yeah. You know, and they'll, they'll, they'll go into a lengthy discussion about the pros and the cons and the practices and the standards of practice are different in different fields. Marriage and family therapists are much, the standard of practice is much more loose when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so it drives me nuts because, like, <laughs> I was at an ethics training in which we were talking about social media and the and the the audience was encouraged to participate in the conversation because whenever you go to have, you know have you you've gone to ethics like it there's yeah. always that point where the facilitator the teacher will open it up to the crowd right right they'll be like so this is the ethical dilemma what do you guys think oh yeah and the dominant voice is always the most militantly boundaried uh, voice. It's never. It's it's never someone that's like, um, well, you know, it depends. Yeah. It's always someone like, oh, you never do that. You just never do that. You know. Huh. I was so I was at the ethics training for social media, and the dominant voice among the crowd was, therapists should never use social media. Oh, ever. That's silly. It's completely unethical. Wow. For a therapist to use Twitter. Uh, even personally, they were saying. One woman even said that therapists should never even have a personal Facebook page. Huh. Yeah. That seems, as you said, militant. Yeah. And and misguided. Like, yeah. like what? Yeah. It's not very genuine. It's not true. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. No, I mean, I mean that stance, it, it is not, it's not genuine. It's like, I'm not a regular person. I'm, what am I then? Right. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've... And so because I don't want to like get into an argument by myself against... Oh, sure. ...against 15 people. Right. I just sit there and chuckle to myself. Yeah. And like, you know, and the facilitator, I could tell, was trying to like go, well, wait a second. I think this is getting a little too one-sided. Right. But he didn't really know how to balance it out. Yeah. He just sort of went with it. He's like, oh, well, man. okay, you know, I hear what you're saying. And then the the time ran out. And if someone didn't know any better, they would have just walked away from that training believing that if you're a therapist, you can't be on the internet. 
Right. Like, there can be nothing on right. the internet of you. The attitude gets contagious. Yeah. And spreads. Because you can't go wrong. Like, if you yeah. say that, you're, right. like, you're not unethical to not have a Facebook page. Sure. You're not unethical to not refer your client's daughter to your supervisee. Right. Like, you'll never get in trouble for, for not doing that. <laughs> except, except for the fact that it's not practical, and you will never be able to enjoy your life. And two, like, uh, you know, there are people out there who believe that fixing the self involves buying a fucking crystal, or fixing the self involves, um, you know, tweeting more or something, or uh, that the earth is flat, sure. or that climate change isn't real, right? or... I don't know, various different things. And us scientists, us professionals have to set the record straight for the benefit of society. And if we're not out there saying things and being a part of the conversation on in the world, on the internet, then, you know, we're not helping anything. And we see the effects of that, you know? Anyway, so that's what I'll say about that. I uh, I had a client a few years ago who, in his words, stalked me on the internet. You know, there's so much public information out there that he just looked me up. He, he yeah. was interested and he looked me up and he found a picture of my house, right? And my address, right? And he felt really weird about it. I'm like, did it help? You know, did, did you want to drive by and see my house in person? You know, you can. I know a story about somebody who has a longstanding relationship with their therapist that person, the therapist is a central figure, their main support. And in order to feel okay, at times in crisis, what that person does is they will park their car down the street from where their therapist lives. And that's it. They just sit there. Yeah. Right. And, and it's a source of comfort and soothing. And, you know, when you think about it, that's what humans do. We gravitate to the sources of comfort and soothing. And this is a real relationship. And I, every time I tell anybody about this situation, they freak out. Yeah. I'm like, well, why? Yeah. You know, people actually respect people. You know, like clients don't want to mess with you. They don't want to invade your space. You, you work out of your home. Yeah. And it's never been a problem. No. So I was like, you know, if you want to park outside my house, you know, it's kind of a busy road, so it's not great that way. But if that would help you, you know, okay. Yeah. Totally. I dig it. Like yeah. it. Even aggressive stalking I see in that light. I don't think it's okay, and I don't think it's uh, something sh people should engage in, but it's the same yeah. uh, uh, anxiety. Yeah. And that if we acknowledge that anxiety and help right. them with that anxiety instead of shaming them and telling, right. them, telling them that they're a serial killer, right. uh, then we can begin the healing process. I don't think it is stalking. I think it's natural curiosity yeah. and an investment in the relationship, and it says something about our alliance. Yeah. Which actually, it says something very good about our alliance. And for people who are preoccupied and disorganized, they're so desperate for an attachment that right. uh, they're, it's only natural. Yeah. And to, I mean, it, it's not like they have to stalk you, so to speak, you know. It's not really stalking. No. <laughs> um, uh, Google you, shall we yeah, say? Yeah, Google. There, there's, there, it's not like they have look to, up. it's not like they have to find your house and look yeah. at it on Google Street View. Yeah. Um, they don't have to do that, but uh, when they have that urge, it is evidence that they're 
trust is opening up to you yeah. as a therapist. They're connecting. You're connecting, and that is a yeah. corrective experience for them. Uh, universally, though, and I get a lot of emails from clients or from uh, from listeners who are clients who will talk about them being ashamed of doing this sort of oh. thing. And they will they will feel like uh, there's something wrong with them, and oh. you know, like I I googled my therapist and somehow uh, got access to her Facebook page and right. I looked at her pictures and now sure. I feel, and I feel really bad oh. and I, and and I'll be like, well, actually, what I'll say is I'll ask them how relational is your therapist? You know how how psychodynamic or how authentic are they? You know, yeah. Because a good number of therapists, if you revealed that to them, which you don't have to do, by yeah, the way, yeah, but right. if you did, um, the uh, there's a good number of therapists that would be freaked out yeah. and would terminate. It would honestly. scare them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these could be very good therapists. Right. Or very helpful. Helpful to a point. To a point. Yeah. Let's just say that. I, that's well, my opinion. Uh, maybe I should restate. This therapy could be really helping me. It could be really in my interest to keep it going. And so not doing something that's going to jeopardize it right. is in my interest. Exactly. It, it might not go as far as therapy could go. Right. But, you know, it depends on what my goal is. Right. Right. So I, one, tell people to try to functionally increase your access to your to your therapist maybe by asking for more sessions or something oh yeah um and if your uh googling is harmless then don't worry about it it's just evidence that the therapy is actually helping you um and if you must then you can absolutely talk about it with your therapist and but only do so if you think your therapist is not the sort of therapist that will freak out. Yeah. If I had a client tell me that, uh, and I have, I'd, I, it doesn't scare me. There's something about that whole thing that just doesn't. I think I've, for me, I'm a skeptic. So when I have notions, I will, especially chronic notions, I will, I will reflect on them and figure out if it makes any rational sense. And one of the notions running around in our society is that we are a, you know, a hair width away from being abducted and killed. Oh. Or we're being a hair, we're, we're, yeah. we're just like, you know, just so close to someone breaking into our house sure. and, and raping us and killing us. The world is dangerous. And you know, we're so close to someone yeah. just like uh, mugging us in an, in an alleyway. Right. Uh, that's not statistically true. No. Uh, when you look at statistics, uh, we are vastly, vastly more likely to uh, throw a clot or to um, <laughs> um, fall in the shower, for right. example, uh, than to have any of those kinds of things happening. Uh, of course, the uh, media doesn't talk about when grandpa has a stroke, but has a stroke, but they will talk about every break into every house that's ever happened in your school shooting every school shooting for example i think my understanding of statistics on violence is that they're going down Mm -hmm. but 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 access to stories about violence are going up exactly so of course i'm going to think the world's a really dangerous scary place and i'm a hair's breadth away from getting you know murdered or whatever unless you take the time to because because i don't want to worry about things that aren't worth worrying about because I worry enough about things that aren't worth worrying about. <laughs> I don't need to add things. And and so um, I've never been worried about uh, people uh, breaking into my house and killing me and right. that kind of thing. Um, 
and because I'll I'll often talk about how I practice out of my home, right? And uh, to other therapists, and they'll just be like, "Oh my god, aren't, sure. aren't you worried about things?" And I'm like, um, "No." One, uh, you know, you can be killed in your office, right? <laughs> like, like it, it, what I always say to people, it's always sort of a litmus test on what their worldview is, is I say, if a client wants to kill you, they can kill you. Sure. If a client wants to kill you, there's there's nothing you can do. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to die. They can buy a gun. Yeah. That's pretty easy. Yeah. Two, they can just get a kitchen knife, and it's not likely you yeah. have a flak, just, flak no. jacket on. Or it's probably not likely you know how to defend yourself against someone with right. a knife who's sitting three feet away from you sure. and lunges at you with a knife. It's pro- you're probably dead. Yeah. Um, so and what it's a litmus test because for the people who have a worldview that the world is dangerous, dangerous. They'll, they'll just be like, "Well, thanks for saying that." Yeah. Right. 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 And and for people who have a litmus who have a worldview that the world is safe, they'll be like, "Oh yeah, you're right." You know, sure. just because they know where you live doesn't mean, doesn't mean suddenly now yeah. they have the ability to kill you. Right. You do lock the knives up, though, when uh, you're having clients over, right? <laughs> yeah. But I leave the guns out. <laughs> I uh, think if I, if I saw clients at my house, my chief worry would be, do the dishes, are the dishes in the sink? You know, like, yeah, yeah. how's the place look? Did I scrub the inside of the toilet bowl? Right. Did, I mean, does, does it smell like dog? Yeah. Because you've never operated out of your house. No, but I thought about it when I, when I moved a couple of years ago. And I was having trouble finding an office, and I was losing the lease at the place I was working. I'm like, well, I could run my class out of my dining room, and I could turn the spare room into an office. And I thought about it um, and um, got lucky, found a place to live. I still think about it, though. Yeah, that's that's different because you have a class of up to 10 people where you teach DBT skills to clients. And that would be hard to to get – that many chairs. Yeah, that was the access and space was the chief chief problem with that. Yeah. I could do it. I mean, we could do it. It would be uncomfortable. Yeah, it wouldn't be quite. Be crowded. Yeah. You see my dining room. It's, you know. Yeah, it's big enough. But the, uh, and the vibe of it too, it's just like, what if like two people go to the bathroom yeah. and they've been back there a while and you're like, well, what's going on? Like it, yeah. whereas in an office building, you don't really have to worry about yeah, those yeah. kinds of things. Right. Um. And so, uh, yeah. Um, well, let's read this last email. Oh, okay. And then let's be done with it. <laughs> uh, a similar concept, actually. This is a, from Anonymous Patron. writes, If someone is having problems in their relationship that manifest through text exchanges, the client might ask the therapist to review the text exchange with them. Uh, also, clients might show photos or videos of significant others so the therapist can have easy have an easy time bringing the person to mind. Is that okay? Is it a boundary crossing? Is it too much like being buddies with your therapist? Does it compromise the privacy of those other people and so on? Bob, what do you think? No, I don't think it compromises privacy. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. If I, you know, I, I suppose I could do that when I go to therapists, share text messages that... I, you know, I have. Um, um, I, have I, clients ever done this with you? No. They talk about it, but nobody's ever gotten their phone out and actually showed me text messages. Mm. Maybe once, but I don't even know if that's true. But I guess I sort of think about myself. And like if, I, if my brain is in, I want to show these text messages to my therapist, you know, my therapy is all like present moment. Its focus is the present moment, what's happening right now. And the question that would come up for us is, what am I... 
what's my, what do I want out of this? What am I trying to achieve? Mm. And one of the things that I've learned is that I sometimes really like to bitch, mm. right? But that bitching for me is um, an avoidance of the present moment and also just takes me away from the present moment. And there's, I, I've spent years in therapy thinking that talking about the difficulties in my life was really good treatment. You know, like that was really good therapy because I talked about stuff that really matters to me. And it's not untrue. It did. Stuff matters to me. And yet <clears throat> it didn't help me because it had nothing to do with the present moment. And the present moment is fucking hard. So it's easier to talk about something else. Mm. So, so the text messaging and the videoing and all I think is what is... What is this doing for me? Or if it's my client, what is this doing for my client? What's our function? I have no opposition to seeing it. Mm. You know, whatever. But what's what's the point? Yeah, I like that. It's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The um, if what theory is that under Gestalt, or what are we talking about? The kind of therapy I'm doing, humanistic, or humanistic, humanistic. I don't, I don't have, we, should, we should call him and ask. I don't actually know. I know he does a thing called uh, Complex Integration of Multi-Brain Systems. Have you heard of that, Sims? No. Yeah, I, I don't really know a lot about it. Um, I know a little bit about it, and um, I don't think he does that exclusively. Sounds like neuronal gestalt. I, you know, that'd be a way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's really aimed at attachment relationships and how attachment gets acted out, but it's oh. a very... Um, neuronal gestalt attachment focused. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably a fair guess. Okay. Yeah, about what it, what it is. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, another uh, extension of what you're saying is that I could imagine it going to is, you know, clients like, oh, I really got to show you this text exchange I have with my husband. Right. The in the now is, I guess what I'm wanting to do is for you to validate me. Right. Or for you to see how screwed up my spouse is or something. Maybe that's what's happening right now. I don't know. Or for you to approve of me somehow. Do you know how hard it is to say, I want you to validate me? Yeah. It's really hard to say that. And yet, at its heart, these kinds of behaviors are aimed at it. Like, can we screw down our nerve and our courage and say, I want you to validate me instead of obliquely point at it and hope to get it? Yeah. There's a lot of power in just being able to declare, this is what I want, as opposed to, hey, look at my text messages, or let me tell you the story about my marriage the other day, blah, 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 blah. That's much more central to the self yeah. than to do the ancillary behavior to get at what you're actually wanting. Boy, what a great sentence. Ancillary behavior to get at what you're actually wanting. Yeah. Yeah. So the... Um, Issue of yeah, I, I've actually had you. You said you you know maybe had it once. I've had a lot of clients do this with me. Not a lot, a lot, but it's happening more and more. Where a lot of people are arguing with their spouses over texting. Oh sure, I've done that. Um, I don't recommend it. Honestly. Oh no, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're really good with emoticons. Yeah, um, right. Exactly why emojis. Yeah. Uh, it's funny, like, as I was saying emoticon, I was like, that doesn't sound right. Because we used to call them emoticons, but now they're called emojis. Emojis, right? Yeah. That's like the Japanese term. Oh, right? is that right? I think so. Yeah. Because um, I think emoticons are the the old script where you just use the punctuation, whereas the emojis... Some of them are so clever. ...are the, uh, the, the actual, actual little pictures faces or yeah. whatever the pictures... Yeah, if I'm remembering right. Anyway... So unless you're really good at that, which is a skill, and you actually know your spouse well enough to know their tone as they're as they're yeah. typing something, 
like for example, one of the things that I do is when people text me and I want to I want to acknowledge that I got it, I will just type in the letter K. Yeah. Must be K. Because I'm like why waste my time text plus I'm not a very fast texter, uh, so yeah. it's like um why waste my time typing out thank you for letting me know. Um I have acknowledged your the receipt of sure. your, you know, it's just I just say K. Yeah. Um my cousin uh who doesn't interpret things in the same way that I do was really insulted by, I mean, she would joke about it, but she was really insulted by the fact that I would just say K. Right. Because to her, I I was being flippant or blowing her off. Dismissive, right. But that's not what I meant. And to other people that know me well enough, when when I say K, uh, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean anything. It means, 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 okay, gotcha, thanks. Um, Anyway, so... I've had a lot of people bring in, and occasionally I've had people say, so I've been talking about my kids for a long time. Can I just show you a picture of my kids? Cause oh, I, I love I w- that. I want you to just have them in your head. Yeah. I find that to actually be really great because oh, yeah. these other people, if, if I'm doing individual therapy, are in the room. Yeah. And That's right. I've already begun to form a picture of them in my head. Oh, yeah. It's sort of like if I start describing to you a dog. Right. Like I had a dog when I was a kid. Right. Right away, you picture it. Did you picture it? Oh, yeah. What my, kind of dog? My dog gestalts. Uh, I think it was sort of like a cocker spaniel mud or something like that. Okay. I don't know. Right. So uh, now, and so therapists will do that. So imagine sure. if we actually had the actual person in mind, it just sort of solidifies things a little bit, you know? Do you do this? I've done this for every client is they talk about being at home and I have a picture in my head of their home. Yeah. And usually it's a variation on a place I lived. <laughs> and one time I, I had a client who couldn't come in for various reasons. And so I went and saw her at home and her home was absolutely different than the home I had in my head. That's funny. Yeah. Really fascinating. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Right. So as Bob said, it's not a boundary crossing. Ah. Um, it It can't be a boundary crossing because... It's happening in the office. Right. The client is talking about themselves. Right. It it by definition can't be a boundary boundary crossing, at least into the into the clinician or the therapist's boundaries, because you're not crossing any therapist boundaries. Yeah. I mean, ther- clients will talk about their innermost darkest secrets. Right. Um, including in you know, embarrassing sexual things, you know, for stigma regarding sex. Of course. And uh, to see a picture of one's spouse is not anything close to that. No. Um, now, the question about whether I, it violates someone else's boundaries, I suppose, I mean, that should be considered. I, I can't really imagine a situation where that would matter. But um, I guess, you know, the only thing where it would become an issue, now that I think about it, is if, the, you, if you show a picture and you as a therapist actually recognize that oh, person. Sure. Right. But you didn't know no. that they were that person, right? And like now you're you like, don't. "Oh my god, that's my bank teller," right? And now you, you know, now yeah. you're like, every time you see that person, you have to like manage right. it or something. Yeah, you um, know, and when they do the a couple counseling, couple supervision or whatever, the consultations that I I used to do, I don't do them these days. Is you know, you video record sessions and you bring them in, and the rule they have is if anybody in the room knows this couple personally that they just agree to stop the tape and have that person get up and leave and then continue on. Right. Just just so you don't create that, you know, dual weirdness. Yeah. Recuse yourself, if you will. Yeah. Um, in my ethics education, we would talk about this scenario. Yeah. And another 
option because say you're you're a clinician and and someone's presenting a case and you actually see on the video screen you're like oh my god I know that person right well let's say they are um they're a they're a so say for me like I work at Antioch I'm a podcaster and I'm a therapist and a right. supervisor yeah and someone comes on the screen and they've been introduced as a professor you know they the 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 presenter is like this client of mine is a professor at a university and then i in this small group of five people who are seeing the video i go oh i'm sorry i have to recuse my recuse myself well what could happen is that all those people could be like oh that person works with you at at your job sure i that's what i would think right um i don't think this really fits because I would still recuse myself, and it wouldn't really matter. But but there yeah. there are situ I can't remember the situations we ran into, but there were some situations where you actually would stay because you wouldn't want to reveal to everyone else um, more information about the client that would be indicated by you recusing yourself. Right. I can't remember what that. No, was. I mean, if we put our heads together, we'd probably come up with some situation where that's the case. Yeah, It'd be a pretty rare event, probably. Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's totally fine, uh, it, you know, to, to show. And um, you ask a question, is it a, you know, is it too much like being buddies with your therapist? Yeah, I mean, I could see it maybe being the beginning of a slippery slope into being buddies, which uh, isn't advisable, um, but not in and of itself. And as long as the therapist is paying attention to that, which hopefully they are, then it shouldn't become a problem. But I guess it would, as a therapist, if you start seeing a lot of that, you know, they start sharing a lot of that information with you, Mm -hmm. I guess I would just put up your radar about like, wait, are we slipping into, especially if they're just showing like, look what I did this weekend or, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, This reminds me of, so I I recently rewatched Departed, The Departed by Martin Scorsese. Yeah, yeah. A uh, 2006 movie. Have you, have you seen that movie? Yeah. Did you see the original? There's an original. Yeah, in Japan, it's Japanese film. Oh, oh, it's fucking good. It's better than the the better than the Departed. Interesting. I don't remember what it's called. Um, I did not know that, and I feel like a bad Japanese person. Well, <laughs> thank you for shaming me, Bob. I'm here to help. Uh, I used to love this movie. I I I used to think it was one of the most perfect movies ever made. Uh, rewatching it. Uh, I've realized that it's a little clunky at times. I yeah. still like it. Sure. It has a very grim ending. It's it's an interesting premise. Yeah. Basically, you have an undercover cop who's good but works with the bad guys, and then you have a corrupt cop who's bad but works with the good guys. Right. And they're both trying to find out who the, who the other, other one is. is. There's a mole somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And the and the lead bad guy played by Jack Nicholson is extremely bad, but he also works with the good guys. Right. And so it's but it's this all star cast. You have Leonardo DiCaprio, right. Matt Damon, Jack Nicholson, Mark Wahlberg, Martin Sheen, Alec Baldwin, and many others. Vera Farmiga. The the therapist. Yeah. So the therapist, uh how did you know her name? She's kind of uh C actress. I, you know? I know this shit. I don't know. Yeah. Like a trap, your brain. <laughs> uh, she, so when I saw this movie back in 06, 07 or whatever, I 
had been a therapist for 10 years. Right. And for some reason, the depiction of this therapist must have only kind of bothered me. Rewatching this movie, you know, this year, 2019. Yeah. The therapist depiction is so bad. Oh, it's bad. It's so ridiculous. Yeah. For so many reasons. One, she's the only woman in the show, pretty much. Oh, well, that's true. And she's treated like she's a complete buffoon. Right. Like she's a child. She, 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 even the way that the actress was told to act the part, she yeah. just comes across like this total drip yeah. who defines herself through these men in, you know, in her life and does whatever they want to do, essentially. Well, she has a, a she's, has relationship with each of the moles. Right. She's the girlfriend of one and the therapist of the other. Right. And uh, so the, there's this one um, exchange where they're in therapy. Leonardo DiCaprio is the good guy, and but he's very busted up about trauma and anxiety. And he's talking to this... She's a psychiatrist, but right. she also does... But she seemingly does a lot of talk therapy. Right. And... If you have a chance to watch this exchange, it's one of the most eye-rolly exchanges ever. He essentially treats her like shit, and she just kind of puts up with it. Yeah. And everything she says, it's like... The, it's, the way it's depicted is the way that assholes see us, you know? Uh-huh. The, when assholes talk about us as, as professionals, yeah. this is what they are describing. Someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. Someone who is overly focused on like cliches and therapy, like how does that make you feel and other shit like that, without yeah. really meaning the question. Right. Um, someone who throws medication at someone. Uh-huh. Uh, someone who has no scruples and no ethical code. Uh-huh. Someone who wants to have sex with their clients. Ooh, yeah, gross. Someone who becomes friends. So Leonardo DiCaprio is a client, and he is, uh, and she's trying to get under his skin. She's trying to like say. Are you okay? You know, yeah. what's your life like? And Leonardo DiCaprio just gets increasingly more angry at her, which uh-huh. I which I thought in the beginning was like, oh, we're we're revealing Leonardo DiCaprio has issues. Yeah. But really what it was was just I think Scorsese or whoever wrote this thing, an excuse for them to yell at a psychiatrist. So Leo <laughs> starts yelling at her. And and he's like, "Well, what do you mean, you know, you're not on the front lines, you know, this is bullshit." And then he starts, and she, you know, is like, uh, doesn't know how to react and reacts in this really immature way. And then at a certain point, he's just like, you know, give me benzos. I need benzodiazepines. You know, I need Xanax or whatever. And she's like, she's like, um, well, we're going to have to have more conversations before I do that, oh. which is kind of a weird response. That is a very weird response. It's like um, a withholding response. Like yeah. you're going to have to prove to me that you're, that you like me or that you can be a, a compliant client before I give you any give drugs. You any drugs. It's like a weird, like the proper response is like, so it, you seem upset. Yeah. Uh, is, and you really want drugs. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Well, okay. So let's slow down. Uh, why do you think you need benzodiazepines? Like what's, what's going on for you? Yeah. Um, we can have a conversation about that, but I need you to work with me here. Um, but instead, she's like, we're going to have to have a lot more sessions before we talk about benzodiazepines. Yeah. It's the weird response. And then he proceeds to like lay into her in this super um, self-righteous way. And of course, the Leonardo DiCaprio character is supposed to be the good guy. So presumably, this is Leo being more also good. Yeah. And so then, and he starts, he starts getting aggressive. 
like hostile and 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 real physically you know like big yeah and then she's like okay fine so she turns around and she gets some benzodiazepines and she gives it to him just hands him benzodiazepines like samples that she has in her wow. in her drawer um which isn't totally weird for a psychiatrist to do but not under those circumstances not that circumstance and then he starts getting really angry he's, he's like two pills only two pills i need more than fucking that and then she's like hey you have classic drug-seeking behavior, which is like the first smart thing she said. Yeah, a little late. So, so blah 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 blah, and he's like, he's like, this is fucking bullshit, you know, blah blah blah, and he runs out of the office. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, that was weird. <laughs> Guess what happens next? I can't remember. The therapist chases him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Into the courtyard outside. Yeah. So one, you can't do that. Well, what is that? You, well. Why are you? Why doing? would you do that? Yeah. Two, you can't break confidentiality. You, and and they proceed to have like a mini session on the steps of the building, right? Um, and then, oh no no no, she brings him a script for benzodiazepines. So she quickly writes a script. She runs and after him, after him, gives him the script. That's that's what that's how Martin Scorsese sees our profession. I guess, man, that's fucked. Yeah, and then and then. Uh, Leonardo uh, calms down, and he's like, "Hey, you want to you want to get a bite to eat?" And then flash forward, now they're on a date. Oh, weird! Like that. So he's screaming at her. Yeah, she runs after him with the script. Leo says, "Want to go on a thank you? Want to go on a date?" They go on a date, and you know, of course, later on, spoiler alert, they have sex. But oh, that's right. Uh, I mean, yeah, what the fuck? Like. How yeah. do you write such a stupid scene with a therapist? It's just like absurd. Yeah. Now, could this have happened? Sure, sure, I could. guess. I guess. But like, point zero zero one percent of therapists would act that way. You know? Oh yeah, right. No, this is a plot device. This whole thing. I mean, I guess it's a plot device. There's, but there's so. Best. Th- this is what upsets me. Is like, there's so many other ways to have written that scene. Oh yeah, you could. That would be a good plot device. Right, just ask somebody. I mean, you're a fiction writer. You understand, you know, it's like they're, they're, you got options. Sure. And you can't just go with what your notion of a certain profession is. You, you should probably do a little bit of research. Um, it's stereotypical. Yeah. You know, like the namby-pamby, wimpy, completely clueless, yada, yada, yada counselor type. Yeah. Yeah. And such a trope. Like the next time I see yeah. a therapist depicted in a way that where they're sexually attracted to their clients and actually acting on those things. I'm just going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. Ex- did you see 50-50? I did, a long time ago. You remember the therapist actually, the movie ends with them having a date. Really? Yeah. Oh, God. Really I remember really didn't. liking that movie. That's a great film. It's really fun. It's really interesting. You it's know, based on a true story. Yeah. Seth Rogen's friend, right? Yeah. Got cancer and had a 50-50 shot. Who knows if the therapist part was based in reality. I don't know. Yeah. But she ends up showing up at, at his house, and they have a date God after damn. his... What the fuck? Yeah. What's wrong with you writers? Like, pull your heads out of your fucking asses. Like, the other thing is, is like, can't two people relate to each other that are of the opposite sex and heterosexual and not have sex with each other? Sure. Is that fucking possible in the realm of the universe that two people uh, who could have sex with each other don't have sex with each other is yeah. that fucking possible like is does everything have to end with penis going into vaginas does it have to turn into temptation 
Yeah. Like, you know, just can't people relate? Yeah. You know, like this whole notion of um, when Harry met Sally, can men and women be friends? Oh, can they be friends? It's just like the, you know, again, it's a litmus test for, I don't know what the test is, but it, two types of personality. My cat wants in on the conversation. She's woken up. The, don't awake the dragon. You're not a Game of Thrones person. No. It's coming up. Uh, yeah. And then it'll all be over. You'll never have to hear it about it again. Well, you know, you guys talk. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. How are we doing on our answering our question? <laughs> we did. We answered it. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. That does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it. <laughs>